0: Get started, and let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation. And let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, for the living word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that one day he is coming to reign, and you are going to make all things right. You're going to judge sin, you're going to uh, judge evil and separate evil forever and how we long for that day thank you for making so much uh, known for us thank you for revealing so much about yourself and about the times to come help us to see you this morning in Jesus name amen this week we're gonna we're gonna begin the introduction uh, to the book of the revelation last week we looked at the hermeneutics that we want to use uh, for interpreting and understanding this book. Everybody remember last week? Or are we that tired this morning? <laughs> I know that a lot of you were busy yesterday with chainsaws and, and all of that. Um, the big thing as we, as we come to this book is that we continue to use the normal means of biblical interpretation that we use for everything else. It's no different. We run into symbolism in other places, in other books. We, we run into metaphors in other books. We, we encounter all of these things. They just seem to be, they are more concentrated in this book. And there's also the other um, side to that in that the book of Revelation is still largely future. Uh, when you talk about hindsight being 2020, that's because we can look back in history and see how things have lined and how, how they have come to be. The book of Revelation is still largely future and therefore, uh, Because these things haven't yet come to pass, there's still question as to exactly how that will be carried out. In fact, just just go there for one second. See, we haven't even been going five minutes and already we're hitting a rabbit trail. How have past prophecies been fulfilled? It was foretold that Jesus would be born of a virgin... How was that fulfilled? Specifically and literally, he was born of a virgin. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. How was that fulfilled? He was born in Bethlehem. It was foretold that he would die in a gruesome fashion, that he would be buried with a rich man in his death. How were those fulfilled? Literally, right? He died. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. So when we look at past prophecies, we see that they have been fulfilled very literally and frankly, just as they were promised. Why would we change that for the book of Revelation? just because those things have not yet transpired. There's no reason to believe that they are not going to be fulfilled exactly as they were said because that is the pattern of centuries of practice. And so as God has revealed these things in the past, they have been literally fulfilled in the past. There's no reason to believe that these things that are still future won't be done in exactly the same fashion. The author of the book of Revelation is not terribly debated. There are some other Johns that are, that are thrown in for um, being potential authors. Frankly, the Apostle John has, has been accepted and recognized Ever since the early church. In fact, you'll see in the beginning you have John. He is exiled on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Christ. Um, Those who want to say that it was written by John the Baptist, uh, they're about 70 years, about 60-something years too late. Uh, There's others that talk about there's another John of Ephesus. There's no record of that man biblically scripturally, and so we can stick with the Apostle John while he was on the Isle of Patmos. We alluded last week, there are two major dates that are listed for authorship, and there's a a reason for having an early date as opposed to what was accepted in the early church unanimously as a later date at about 95 A.D. The early date is usually put somewhere between 64 and 68 A.D. during the reign of Nero. Now there's only one reason to to have an early date and that is to be able to say that many of the prophecies in this book were fulfilled in 70 A.D. at the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, contextually, there's some problems with trying to have an early date. So let's look at a couple of them. So since we're in Revelation, let's go to chapter 3. And go to verse 14 to the message to the letter that was given to the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now what is the picture that is given here of the church at Laodicea? Their view of themselves they say rich. okay they say that they're rich they, they don't have need of anything they're they're good. They're good. yeah they're good now there's two ways to look at this one of them is physically And the other is spiritually. Now, which one is Jesus concentrating on? He's concentrating on the spiritual, right? They think that everything is just peachy. And in reality, they are nobody how they perceive themselves to be. Now, physically, Laodicea had been a very rich place. It was a Roman city. It was a free city. Laodicea was destroyed completely by an earthquake in 60 AD. They refused to have, uh, to accept Roman funding for rebuilding the city. And it took 25 years to put the city back together. Now, if in fact we have a, a letter that is written to this church in 67 or 68 A.D., what's the status of their city? No, in fact, they're still cleaning up debris and rebuilding. And so Laodicea doesn't seem to fit with having this type of a letter written to them in the late 60s, mid to late 60s. That one there... eh, Okay, look, that could probably go either way. Ephesus won't. So flip back a page, and let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you're going to hold to an early date of six, somewhere between 64 and 68 A.D., You just came into competition with someone else who's writing to somebody in Ephesus. Now, we just finished studying the pastoral epistles, right? 2 Timothy was written fairly briefly, shortly, before the death of the Apostle Paul, which is occurring in 67 or 68 AD, right in this window. When you look at the book of 2 Timothy... What is Paul's major concern? What what is the big fight that Timothy is to fight as he leads the church at Ephesus? False doctrine. Absolutely. If you when you look when you read 1st and 2nd Timothy, it is just over and over and over again. You Teach them not to teach these strange things. You command them not to teach these strange things. You don't follow after these, these whimsical ideas and speculations that are going to take you and they're going to take your those who hear you away from the gospel. Now, if Paul is writing this to Timothy at the same time that this letter from Jesus is being sent to that church, they don't add up. They're not even close. Because as Jesus is talking to them, you guys have handled... You know, Here's a beautiful thing. Timothy was successful. That timid guy was empowered by God, and he carried out his mission, faithfully and successfully. Because now here you have, a couple of decades later, three decades later, you have an an assessment of this church. And this church is no longer hounded by false doctrine. They've dealt with that issue. And how can you tell from the letter here in Revelation 2 that in fact this has to be at some time in the rearview mirror? There's a term that's used. And it's a term that can only deal with the passage of time. Look back down, and you will find it in verse three. What's the term? Perseverance. Perseverance only happens with time. In fact, perseverance only happens with time in the midst of struggle. You don't have to persevere in uh, when times are good, in prosperity. You don't, have to, you don't have to persevere on that one. And it's in the past tense. You have done this. And so again, contextually, there's, I don't think there's any way that you can, you can take an early date for this book. Not when you've got other letters being written to, this, to one of the same churches that is radically different as to the struggles that they're facing at that particular time. So that kicks you into a later date, and that later date is going to be in the vicinity of 95 A.D., which means it is the last of the books to be written that we have in our Bibles. Fittingly, because it's, it's the capstone, right? It is, you know, here's, here's the last chapter. And everything that has been leading up to this point finds its culmination in this book. Now, the book outlines fairly easily, and the outline is actually given in the book. So if you, since we're in Revelation, just flip back, uh, look just up in my Bible a little bit to chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus, in fact, we'll go back to verse 17. When I saw him... I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Stop right there for just a moment. He's fallen at the guy's feet as a dead man. When you do that to an angel, is that different than how Jesus is, well, does that give you an idea as to who this person is? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So this is an angel. This is Jesus that he's, that he's speaking with. And in fact, that comes in right here. I am the first and the last. And the living one. These, by the way, these are so rich. When we, when we actually start getting into the text, when he he talks about I'm the first and the last, that ties into at least three different places in Isaiah. I'm the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Verse 19, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. There's your outline. So, the things that you have seen, that's chapter one. The things that are, is chapters two and three. And the things that will take place after these things, is chapters four through 22. And so the book outlines, you know, very easily in that fashion. Let's talk about themes of the book. The the main theme is given in the first few words in verse one of chapter one. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here you have Christ done. Would you go over that thing you just went over? What's that? Okay, so the things that will take place after these things, that is the stuff that is still future. And so as as John, in fact, let's just go over, uh, flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. So in chapters 2 and 3, we've got seven letters to the seven churches to which this book is being sent. This book was being sent to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, and these letters that are specifically to those churches are in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 4, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so that's our transition from the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, And now that's our transition is, here's the things that are still coming in chapter 4, verse 1, and that runs through the end of the book. Does that make sense? Good. So we have the revelation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the revelation of Jesus in his full majesty, in his full deity, as to, to who he is and the reasons why. All of the praise and all of the adoration is due to him and no other. That's not the only theme. We're going to find that a heavy, a a significant theme because it occupies the majority of the book. The majority of the book is about judgment. That judgment is going to come in three waves. There are three series of judgments. You've got the seal judgments, you have the trumpet judgments, and then you have the seven there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, there are seven bowls. And the bowls are specifically referred to as those are the bowls of the wrath of God, which is being poured out unmixed on the devil and on those who follow him and ultimately on the planet itself. And so you have the judgments of God against Satan and rebellious mankind. You'll see, as we will see, as we go through, that people realize why these horrific events are occurring. They'll recognize who is bringing them. They'll recognize that these are actions of God against evil and yet they will refuse to repent in fact rather than repent they would rather die literally we'll see with the seal judgment you know they, they, they call out to the mountains fall on us that you may spare us from the wrath of God and so judgment against Satan and rebellious mankind and there is a third major theme in this book and that is the purification and redemption of national Israel. Now you say, how do you get there? If you read this book like you read any other book, you'll end up premillennial and pre-tribulational. You will. In the first three chapters, You will find, uh, I'll get off the, uh, I'll get out of the order of the outline here just a little bit. The word for church is ekklesia. You find that word 19 times in the book of Revelation. 18 of those occur in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The 19th is in chapter 22, verse 16, at the end of the book near the end of the book. The church is not referred to at all from chapter 4, verse 1 all the way until chapter 22, verse 16. Now, in the first three chapters, it's all about the church. This book is being written to the seven churches. And in fact, now we have specific letters to these specific seven churches. And after that, silence on the issue. And in fact, where are the seven churches? Yeah, they're in Asia Minor. The area of Turkey. That's where all the focus, the attention is focused in the first three chapters. As soon as you get to chapter four, You split, and you have basically two major arenas. One is in heaven, in God's presence. The other, when you get down here on the earth, where's the rest of the book focused geographically? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in fact, as you start to go through and look, all of a sudden, you start hearing all kinds of language, That ties back to the Old Testament. You're going to have, there's going to be 144,000 witnesses that God is going to use as evangelists during the time of the judgments. Who are those 144,000 people? They're Jews. By blood. 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. Not the 12 original tribes, interestingly. Joseph gets a double whack. He has, you know, you have the family of Joseph and you also have the tribe of Manasseh. Anybody know offhand which tribe gets left out? Dan. Dan gets left out. The tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan. And so, but yet, everything, in fact, What else is happening during this period of time? You have a functioning temple with sacrifices being offered, at least for the first three and a half years. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, this period of time, what is it referred to as? There's going to be two main titles that we're going to go back and we're going to go back and we're going to grab those threads and pull them forward. One of them is going to be this is the 70th week of, of Daniel so in Daniel when you have 70 weeks are prophesied for your people this is week 70 there is also another uh, descriptor of this period of time you'll find that in Jeremiah and that is this is the time of Jacob's trouble so whose trouble is it Jacob who's Jacob Israel, right? That's where Jacob's name was changed back in the book of Genesis, right? He was no longer called Jacob. Jacob meant what? Deceiver. Instead, Israel. That is your new name. And so this is the time of Jacob's trouble. As you look from chapters 4 through 22, you find that this is focused, all of a sudden now it's taken on a Jewish overtone. In chapter 12, we're going to run into there is a sign and there is a symbol. There's going to be a woman. That woman is who? If you don't know now, that's okay. We'll we'll figure that out when we get to chapter 12, but I'll, I'll pull the curtain back for you because God's already pulled it back for us. That's Israel. And so the purpose of the 70th week of Daniel, the purpose of the time of Jacob's trouble is to bring the Jewish people to the place in Zechariah 12 where they will look on me The one who's been pierced. And they will mourn for me as for an only son. you about the No. 70 AD. Um, 70 AD does fit in, but for a different reason. 70 AD specifically fits in. To, to make it to where uh, when, you, when you have Paul in Romans 9 to 11 and he is referring to you have the natural tree and some of those branches have been broken off and new branches have been grafted in for a period of time. 70 AD takes out the Hebrew system of worship. And that's a means by which God is able to go and say, listen, this is this part is over. There is a new thing here in coming. And so it's not for final judgment on Israel. In fact, how can we know that 70 AD isn't for final judgment on Israel? How do we know that? What happened in 70 AD? You have the temple destroyed and you have a, you have a dispersion but not a total dispersion. The total dispersion came in 135 A.D. in the bar Kokhba Rebellion. And that's when the Romans said, you know what, we've had it with you people. And so they kicked all of the Jews out of Israel and renamed the place. There is no nation. Now, why is it that we would know that God's not done with that people? How many people in here have been to Israel? I know, you, I know some, I've walked in a place that is called Israel. It is the only nation that I can think of, and if anybody knows another one, speak up, because I'm all ears. What other nation has not existed on the planet for 1,800-plus years and then all of a sudden comes back with the same name? Yeah, You know, from 135 when they're all out up until 1948 when all of a sudden the nation is reestablished. And so here again you have the hand of God, Joy. Same name, same language, same place, same place. And so... As we look at that, here you have the nation being reestablished. And in the same place, when you talk about uh, another temple being built, we'll see that temple in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I think I've told you before, when, uh, when, when Carolyn and I went with Sean and Juliet in 2013, we were able to get up on Temple Mount. And I was walking around, I was pacing off. Temple Mount because I wanted to see would Ezekiel's temple fit up here and if I can I'm going to try to do that uh, with pictures to show here's Temple Mount here's where Solomon's temple was and its relative size here is Zerubbabel's temple and its relative size Zerubbabel's temple was uh, greatly expanded by Herod the Great Herod the Great lived when? Herod the Great Was the king. We we see him every year in the Christmas program up here. All right. Because Herod the Great was the king who ordered the execution of the babies in Bethlehem. And then you see Ezekiel's temple, which dwarfs them all. It's huge. Now there are three views, how do so let's let's take this because this is kind of the elephant in the room. Um, there are three views as to the relationship between Israel and the church. Now one view is going to be that Israel and the church are the same. that the church started in the Old Testament because, and, and, and the reason for that is, is that the church, are, they are spiritual sons and daughters of who? Abraham. And so, there are some who will say that the church goes back into the Old Testament. Now, there's a problem with that view. Actually, there's a number of problems. Uh, first of all, In the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God, what avenue did you have in order to be able to do that? If you're not a Jew, you become a Jew. You get circumcised. You follow the law. And you do the things that Jews would do. If you wanted to be a priest in the Old Testament... Was that based on your merit? Was that based on your gifting? What was it based on? Yeah, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And if you wanted to be, you know, in the high priest, you wanted to, to go and have that position. Was that open to anybody? Oh, come on now, that one ought to be pretty vigorous. No, that's not open to anybody. In fact, it's restricted to who? You had to be of the line of Aaron in order to be high priest. And so it was all, of, and, and in fact, when you, when you look at the book of Hebrews, we get into that when it talks about, you know, Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You have uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, when you have, the return of the nation from the Babylonian exile, those who were not able to demonstrate their blood lineage, that they were in fact members of the tribe of Levi, could they serve in the new temple? No. If you couldn't prove your lineage, you're out. You can't serve in that way. So it was about pedigree. It was about your heritage. Now let's go over to the church for a moment. Does that carry over to the church? The only way in which your pedigree and your service in the church come, intersect is that you have to be an adopted child of God. you got to be a family member. Other than that, It doesn't matter. In fact, in the church, how is it determined what your role is in a local body? Who determines that? Come on, that's an easy one. God does. Who distributes spiritual gifts? God does. Doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter who your parents were. And so the economy there, when it comes to service between Israel and the church, are diametrically opposed. In Israel, you had the power of the sword. Who had authority to enforce the consequences of the law? The leadership did, right? Uh, They're wandering in the wilderness. There's a guy out collecting sticks. He's collecting firewood on the Sabbath day. What happened to him? He was executed because you weren't supposed to do that kind of thing on the Sabbath day. There are all kinds of examples because they had the power of the sword to enforce God's law. Does the church have the power of the sword? I guess we ought to be thankful for that. The church does not have the power of the sword. The church has never had the power of the sword. When it comes to dealing with sin, what did God give? What what are the limits that God has given to the church? If a person refuses to repent, what is the consequence? You're put out of fellowship. Now, can there be lethal consequences to failure to repent? Absolutely. But who carries that out? God does, not us. You got a question, Jeff? Okay. I saw that hand trying to creep. Okay, Andrew's gonna bail you out. <laughs> okay, now, okay, you just brought two things up, but there's a third, all right? So Andrew's question is, okay, in talking about Ananias and Sapphira, is that God doing that? Is that government doing that? That was God doing that. God struck Ananias and Sapphira for lying. Yeah, God, God carries that out. Um, you find in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper and there's been uh, abuse of the Lord's Supper. And what were the consequences of the abuse? Some of you are sick, and some of you have fallen asleep. Now, that's a very nice way of saying that they're six feet under pushing up daisies, right? So the idea is, who who brought that about? Not the church. That was God's action. And so Israel had the power of the sword. The church does not. Now, let's talk about individuals who, in the Old Testament, had the Holy Spirit indwelling. Was it a common thing? No, very uncommon. And in fact, if the Spirit of God was resting on you, everybody on the block knew it, right? You were a different man. You were a different woman. So it was very rare for that to happen in Israel. Now, how about the church? Is it rare in the church to have the indwelling Holy Spirit? No, in fact, it is mandatory if you're going to be in Christ that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so there's no way to be able to take the church and Israel and put them together and say that somehow they're the same thing. You can't do it. Now, you cannot do it. As the events in Revelation carry forward, what are you going to find? You're going to find a massive turning on the part of the nation of Israel. And they're going to come to their Messiah. And at that point, what will you have? Well, you're going to have a redeemed nation and you're going to have a church, and those are going to be on the same page. So, that's the, the idea of the church being spiritual Israel. It doesn't, doesn't fly. That's one view. Second view is that Israel and the church are distinct. They are different from each other. But the church has replaced Israel as the inheritor of the promises of God. And this is when you run into a term called replacement theology, that's this one, that the church has inherited the promises that were made to Israel by God in the Old Testament. Do the friends of Israel hold that? No, friends of Israel do not hold to that one. Not, not by a long shot. They're going to hold to view number three. We'll get there in just a minute. And so now, why is the church inheriting those promises? In that view, that is happening because Israel disobeyed. They had a window of opportunity. They had their Messiah there in their presence, and they rejected him. And because they rejected him, and again, you... A generation here after the crucifixion you've got 70 AD to where there is no more normal Jewish way of life could you have normal worship as a Jew if you don't have a temple no everything about your life has changed irrevocably and so They look at that and they say, there's the judgment of God. And you can see how over centuries that kind of a view could come to take place. Because as the centuries go on and there's no nation, and the centuries go on and you you continue to have, I mean, the Jews were the local whipping boy for most regimes in history. They're hated, they're despised. By many. And, you know, and then, of course, you, that results in the Holocaust, right? Six million Jews specifically targeted because they were Jews. And so, you, I, you know, you can see how over centuries that, you know what, these people, God despises them because all of these things are happening. And then you get 1948. In the reestablishment of the, of the Jewish nation, and you have what can only be described as interventions by God, they should have been wiped out in 1948. They should have been wiped out in 1967. They should have been wiped out in 1973. They're still surrounded by a bunch of people who hate them. Who do you think is public enemy number one in Iran, and the, the target, if they ever develop nuclear weapons, who do you think the first one's going to get delivered to? It's going to be Israel. They're still hated. And so the idea that, that the church replaced Israel, the, the church is the is the entity that has recognized God and Christ. The church is the one that has... Uh, seen Christ as the Messiah, as God's atonement for mankind, therefore the church inherits and they take Israel's place in receiving the promises originally made to them. Now, Greg... Yes. Yes. Now, here's a problem. Um, when you look at the covenants, in the, old, in the Old Testament, the standard way of adopting a covenant, in, in, what's a covenant? It's an agreement. It's a contract. How many sides are there in a contract? Usually at least two right? You have people who accept certain responsibilities, and in turn, for accepting those responsibilities, there are certain rewards that come from that contract. How was a contract ratified in the Old Testament? It was ratified by blood. They would take an animal, they would split the animal in half, Put half over here, half over here. The idea being that if I violate the terms of this contract, may this happen to me, all right? And both parties would walk in between that divided animal. That was the means of ratifying the contract. So when you look at the contract, the Abrahamic covenant, the the covenant made between God and Abraham, who walked between the animals, the, the split animals, God did, alone. Where's Abraham? He's snoring over here off to the side. God set the terms. God took on the responsibility for fulfilling that covenant, alone. Now, are there blessings for Abraham if he obeys? Yes. Are there cursings for Abraham if he disobeys? Yeah. does that nullify the contract? No, because it was made by God and God alone. And so the idea here that, look, did Israel disobey? Yes. Yeah, they did. Their Messiah was in their midst. And they should have known him. And in fact, and he did. And they rejected him anyway. We will not have this man to rule over us. Not this one. And were they judged? Yeah, they were. Their way of life ceased to be. And it ceased to be for a long time. In fact, it has still ceased to be. There's a nation... But do you have a restored Jewish uh, way of life? No, why not? They don't have a temple. They still don't have that. And so, again, so here you have that, you have the idea, the Israel and the church, they are separate. Israel has been set aside and now the church comes in and they stand to inherit all of the blessings and all of the promises that God made to Abraham. Third view, Israel and the church are distinct and God is going to fulfill his promises to national Israel. That is what friends of Israel believe. And rightly so. When you read Romans 9 to 11, you can see Paul lay out that here you have... Who was the greatest enemy of the church in the first century? Jews. They were the greatest enemy of the church. Why was Paul in prison first time? Was he in prison because the Romans were upset with him? No. He was in prison because the Jews were mad at him. And in fact, who were his greatest persecutors? When you read in 2 Corinthians 11 talking about all of the the physical afflictions that he had suffered, five times from the Jews. I was beaten. And so the Jews were the greatest enemy of the church in in the first century. Paul looks at that and he says, some of the natural branches, they've been broken off. And new branches have been brought in. And yet, God's not done with the old branches. Because if God took them out, he can definitely put them back. That's what the the tribulation is for. That is regrafting the nation of Israel. The time of the church is... Just that, there is a beginning. There's a beginning at the at Pentecost when the church is established. There is an end for the time of the church. The end for the time of the church is the rapture. The church is physically removed from this planet to be ever in Jesus' presence. That is the trigger for God restoring the people of Israel. And so you have this period of time, which is, that's why it's got a Jewish tone to it, because it's about them. God is going to rescue a whole bunch of Gentiles as well, but the focus, his redemptive focus, is on the people of Israel. And the millennial kingdom is about fulfilling the kingdom promises to Israel questions on that we kind of breezed through that in fact there's no kind of we did breeze through that but we could end up, we could spend a lot of time here and I can't do the book in six months if we spend a lot of time here but questions Alan Sure. Okay, so let's flip over there. Uh, The passage that Alan is is referring to is Galatians 6.16. In fact, I was going to do something. Let me see if I can do that here. I don't know if I can. Stand by for a moment. I don't think it's going to let me do it. No, that's not what I want. I want. that. no it's not. okay. galatians 6:16 and those who will walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the israel God now that is the ESV let's look at in the NAS and those who will walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God Don have you got your King James with you you got is it a King James or a new King James Uh, what does it say there and the last phrase Uh, Is it and or even the Israel of God? And? And? Okay. King James has even the Israel of God. Now, even and and, mm, those are the same word in Greek. And the Greek word is kai, K-A-I. Kai is a conjunction. It is most and upon. That's King James? Where'd they get even? There is a translation that that has even the Israel of God. That is a minority translation of Kai. Kai is most commonly translated and. Because there was one that had even, that was used to say that um, the Israel of God is referring to the church being the Israel of God. And um, it is the only use, uh, when it talks about Israel, it is the only use in the New Testament that can be contorted in order to, to, to have that conclusion. The bottom line is, is that if you take the standard translation for Kai, it's and and it's not uh, any a, uh, it's not saying that the church and Israel are in fact the same that is to my knowledge that is the primary text that's used for those who want to say that uh, Israel that the church is Israel from the New Testament spiritual, spiritual Israel Thank you. Romans six, I think it's a fail in that. Go ahead and read it if you would. It is not as though the word of God is fail, for they are not all Israel, or descended from Israel. Right. So you can be genetically Jewish and not Israel in God's sense. Right. Okay, Israel in the book of Revelation. Not addressed at all in chapters 1 through 3. And yet, all of a sudden, they are the focus of attention in the rest of the book. Geographic area of attention is Jerusalem. In fact, most of the main, many of the main events that we're going to see in the book of Revelation occur in Jerusalem. 144,000 witnesses are from the 12 tribes. You have a functioning temple until the midpoint of this period of time. And Israel's the woman in chapter 12. So again, it is um, the whole tone of the book from chapters 4 through 22 is about Israel, about God's people Israel and bringing them to saving faith. And by the way, it is going to be at a tremendous cost. I can't remember if it's two-thirds or 75% of the Jews will die during the course of this week, of this period of seven years. And so it is going to be uh, horrific for them. It's also going to be horrific for mankind. Billions of people are going to die as a result of these judgments. When you look and when you look at the seals, when they start being released, a third of mankind, a quarter of mankind, being taken out under one set, one judgment. How many people are on the planet now? Seven billion. A third of seven. Two in change. gone and so not a place that you want to be and that is a foretaste of what eternal judgment is going to be for those who reject Christ See, we talk about hell. Where is the eternal dwelling place for those who reject Christ? Where is the eternal dwelling place for those people? It's in the lake of fire. Now, you know I was a fireman. I got to tell you. don't want to be there. I cannot think of a more horrific punishment. If you're here now and Christ is not your Savior, what we're going to be studying is what awaits you. And so the time to repent is today while you can. Any questions? Write this day down. It's probably the only time in the next six months that we're going to finish right at 10 (laughs) o'clock. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. You do not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are loving. You are kind. You are gracious. You're merciful. You're compassionate. All of those could be spoken of you with every superlative in our language, and we couldn't even begin to scratch the surface. And yet, Father, you are also holy, and your wrath is just as beautiful as your love It's just as much a part of you, and it's just as pure. There is coming a day when you are going to judge evil, and you're going to judge those who hold it and who long for it. The day is coming where you're going to judge all those who stand in opposition to you. And yet, even now, you extend common grace, You extend opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be exposed to the truth, to hear the gospel. How patient you are. How kind. And Father, we ask that that many, even in our day, that many would see that they would taste and see that you're good. That they would see the the, the wrath that awaits them. And rightly so. And Father, we ask that they would turn, even in our day, that you would use the, the, the different situations that are that are happening now in our day and time. People should be afraid. They should be very afraid. But they should be afraid because they're under your wrath. But you also provide a way of escape, a way of redemption. Father, help us to be faithful in proclaiming that message, that many would flee the wrath that is to come. And Father, I pray as we're studying this book that that we would tremble at your word, that we would look at this, that we would understand it as you've written it and understand it as you have intended it and not be tied down to whatever interpretations we were raised with. Father, help us to see you and help us to see you in your glory. Thank you for showing it to us. In Christ's name, amen.